Well, good morning, everybody. If you would, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And we'll begin by standing to hear this passage read one, one more time. Starting in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they had saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This is God's word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning, thankful for your word, thankful that you not only sent Christ into the world, but that you sent messengers to proclaim this good news to us. And Father, we're thankful most of all that by the power of your spirit, you have awakened us to new life, that you have regenerated our dead souls, that we might turn in repentance and faith. And Father, we pray this morning that if one is gathered here that doesn't know you, that you would do that miraculous work in them even today. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in all that we do today, and we pray that you would write this eternal truth of your incarnation on all of our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I think when we read this passage, much of what strikes us about this passage is that the God of the heavens has been brought to such a lowly estate. And that should capture our attention. It's interesting, though, that, that this has been turned into somewhat of a liberalistic, moralist-type uh, message in many places today. Uh, liberals have seized on this narrative to teach some sort of outward care for the poor or outward manifestation of work that, that, that really is contrary to what the Bible Teaches. And what I would suggest to you this morning is that this is really the second greatest passage in all of Scripture to show the reality of not only the humility of Christ, but also the radical depravity of man. This, the, the first narrative, of course, that explains both of these truths is the cross of Christ. Any passage that mentions the, the death of Christ on the cross for sinners. But here we have a narrative that if we read it rightly, understand it rightly, really does teach us how depraved our human souls are apart from Christ. Martin Luther wrote, When Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, they were the most insignificant and despised. No one noticed or was conscious of what God was doing in that stable. He let the large houses and costly apartments remain empty. He let their inhabitants eat and drink and be merry, but this comfort and treasure are hidden from them. Oh, what dark night this was for Bethlehem. That, was, that it was not conscious of this glorious light. See how God shows that we utterly disregard what the world is, that the world is, has, and desires. And furthermore, that the world shows how little it knows or notices what God is, has, 
or does. The one that was born into this lowly estate is the same one that we've been talking about for the past several months and with which John opens his gospel with these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The, the, the incarnation is the greatest up to this point, the greatest event in human history, and yet Christ's incarnation went almost entirely unnoticed. Doesn't that give you a picture of what humans are apart from the regenerating uh, aspects of the gospel? That the God of the heavens was born into the world and they, they didn't even notice it. They went on living their lives as they had before. And of course, John's Gospel goes on to tell us that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is from the fullness of the incarnation of Christ that John can say in verse 16 of John chapter 1, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We all need that grace because we are all, apart from Christ, so radically depraved. If you're here this morning and you think in and of yourself, boy, if I was there, I would have noticed. I would have seen something different about this Christ that was born in the major. No, you would not have. Because I would argue that all of us who are gathered here today, who have even been told the story of the incarnation, we've received the fullness of the message that the shepherds heard, and yet so many uh, instances from our lives would remind us that our own depravity keeps us from glorying in God for what He has done. Some this morning would come and say that uh, man can, can come to Christ on their own. Given enough time and given enough light, they will receive Him of their own accord. And if that's true, think about it this morning. Here is Jesus, born in a manger, and yet the, these angels had to be sent to declare to the shepherds that Christ had come. If man will come to Christ in his own timing, then why would the angels have to declare to these shepherds? If, if man is so well, then why didn't they, even in this narrative, receive, receive him in the right way, worshiping him for who he was? You see, the, the, the truth is that there are many things that ruin the glories of the incarnation for us. One is modern theology. Modern theology ruins the incarnation narrative because modern theology doesn't want to be humbled under an incarnate Christ. If this baby that is laying in the manger is truly God and truly man, then he is truly king, he is truly Lord, and we should truly submit to his every word. And so this incarnation is undermined in liberal and modern theology. But the Bible understood rightly not only portrays a humble Christ, it teaches us that what man needs most is humbling. It doesn't just teach us this moralistic example that Christ humble, was, 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 was of humble estate and so we should follow that pattern and in our own strength become what Christ was. This isn't just a moral message. Beloved, we are radically depraved and it is only by irresistible grace, the irresistible grace of God, that we can ever come to rejoice in this Savior who was born in the city of David. What is so astounding about this narrative is almost altogether lost on us. And it's lost on us because, well, because, and, and I hope that nobody gets upset here. But the, 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 the majesty of this passage, Dallas, is almost altogether lost on you and I because we have been indoctrinated by scuzzy church plays. We have been taught what to feel 
about this narrative instead of year in and year out being given, given more and more of what to know about what is taught here. You know, we're, we're taught to have that aww feeling about the incarnation. Well, I would argue with you this morning that the incarnation of Christ and Him being born there in Bethlehem in, in, in the most meager of accommodations it should not be less than all, but friends, it should bring us to so much more than just merely a feeling. Uh, there's so much bad drama that goes on in churches, most of it on stages. Um, I, I think I would have been, I, I would love to find out in human history the, the meeting of the minds in the church where we first came up with the idea I tell you what, we're going to, instead of having this this text preach, we've got an idea. We're just going to put together a little play. Rodney, you go get the toga that we used for the Easter play. We're going to wrap you up. You're going to be Joseph. And then we've got to find somebody in the congregation that has recently had a baby. And we're going to put all of this together and we are going to... Now think about this. Think about the insanity of this task. Inside of a local congregation, smaller churches, typically we don't have you know, vaudeville actors, the, 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 the um, thespian uh, economy of, uh, of New York or of Hollywood, and yet we give attempts to portray the singular most miraculous event in human history. And then we think, and, and I don't mean to, to, to pick here, but I, I remember with Friends, listen, y'all pray for me because I have a bad attitude about some things in the church. And one of the, Sarah can, Sarah, if she ever writes a book, one of, one of the, the, the most uh, shameful ways I responded to, to being asked to participate in something was the first year we were here at, at LifePoint and I was asked to be in a play. And the first thing I did was read the manuscript. And I walked into the pastor's office and I said, I, he said, what do you think? I said, I think this is ridiculous. Because it doesn't even clearly explain the gospel. And because I don't act. There's so many bad expressions of what is going on in Luke chapter 2. Friends, I pray that you would, tomorrow morning when you get ready to open presents, if your kids last that long, ours have been pestering us for the past week, just trying to, like, I'm not convinced that that's not going to happen before then, but... But before that happens, I, I would encourage you to, to take out Luke chapter 2 again and read it around the, uh, the Christmas tree and meditate on the reality that whatever you find under that tree tomorrow morning is, I promise you, exponentially less than what has been given in this narrative. Amen. The, the, the joy of what is exclaimed here and what had to be heralded by angels is something that should cause us not just once a year at Christmas time to sing about the glory of God, but to live lives in every area of our life to the glory of God. Heralding this particular message, there are things here that we need to know. This is not merely something that we express in drama. This is glorious history that should change our life. And what is marvelous is who God chooses to reveal His incarnation to. I think that's one of the things that should strike us about this text more than anything else. He doesn't come to the kings. He doesn't send His message first to the scribes and to the Pharisees and to the religious, theological, erudite minds of the day. He comes to lowly shepherds. Look at verse 8 with me. And in the same region there were shepherds out in a field keeping watch over their flock by... Night. Now, why would God choose these shepherds? And there are several answers to that question. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 33, we'll find that part of what's going here, on here is that prophecy is being fulfilled. God has said that He will send a message to the shepherds, and so here it's happening. Some take this uh, picture of the shepherd and tie it to King David, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But friends, what we need to see, I, I think more than anything else, in the reality that God, and, and to us, here's the deal. I tell you that, that, that the angels declared that Jesus was born to shepherds, and all of us go, well, yeah. 
And we think about Rodney and the toga that was borrowed from the Christmas or the Easter play, right? That's become so humdrum to us that it no longer grips our attention. But I promise you that it was gripping to those shepherds. That this was absolutely astounding. Why? Because the shepherds were the outcasts of society, second only to lepers during this time. Why? Because they lived lives out with the flocks, and by nature of their vocation, they weren't able to make it into town very often to participate in all of the ceremonial washings and all of the different uh, lustrations and things that, that the Old Testament prescribes. And so they were viewed as unclean people, not only ceremonially, but in so many other ways. They were, they were the, the blue-collar, low-caste workers of the society and it's it would be befuddling to them that you that God would choose to come to to them first and foremost but what I think God is teaching us here he's telling us the extent of which redemption must be heralded he, he's saying that that this gospel that the truth of Christ being born incarnate, of the second member of the Trinity and taking on human flesh, that truth must be delivered from the uttermost to the guttermost. It, it must be heralded to the, uh, the ends of the earth to every person that no one, because of their social or political or uh, uh, their religious caste, is cut off from this glorious gospel. Uh, what, what, what we are being taught here is that this is good news for all people. Terribly good news, in fact. Apparently, the angels had not considered appearing in a precious moments type fashion to these shepherds. Uh, Precious Moments Chapel is in Carthage, Missouri, close to where I grew up. And I can remember being thrown into a car at 5 a.m. as a 10-year-old boy to go enjoy the Precious Moments Chapel. I can also tell you from a subjective opinion that 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, because we went all the time, boys don't like the Precious Moments Chapel. Don't think precious moments in this moment, because although it was a precious moment, it wasn't just a cartoonish appearing of these angels. Look at verse 9. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now there's questions of whether or not this is... Um, Exactly who these angels are, and I'm not even going to get into that. I, I think that the text really explains it. But what we need to see here more than anything else is at the very end of verse 9 that they were filled with great fear. Now, some people would argue it was because of what the angels looked like, and I've already kind of jested in that direction. And there is some truth to the fact that I think angels would, uh, are, are majestic creatures that would make us tremble, that, that, that would make us quake with fear, but, but I think that if we are reading this text and all that we're seeing is that they were trembling at these majestic creatures, we're missing part of what is being communicated. Because part of what is being communicated is that these were holy creatures that were revealed to unholy men. In Rudolf Otto's book, The Idea of the Holy, he has this Latin phrase, mysterium tremendum et fascinius, which is translated fear and the, the fearful and fascinating mystery. And that is that the, the reality of the holiness of God causes mortal men to quake in fear. What is being described in verse 9 in the reality that they were filled with great fear was not because of their optic nerve seeing the angels it was because they knew of their own depravity their own wretchedness and these angels were radiating the very glory of God the holiness of God and here they are trembling before them that's what's really happening here these shepherds were trembling because they are sinners and friends if you think man I think he's just I think he's reading something into that text. Then think about Isaiah chapter 6. There Isaiah, woe is me, 
I am a man of unclean lips who dwells in the, people, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There is this reality that, that through, all throughout the Bible, think about the, the, the disciples with Christ on the Sea of Galilee and, and the winds and the waves, and, and they, they fear not just at the winds and the waves, but when he calms them that there is this one who has authority over even the winds and the waves of the sea. The trembling of sinful man before a holy God is something that is found all throughout the Scripture if you're, if you're alive to it. Nothing less than the glory of God has been radiated again here in His messengers. And this scared these poor sinners. They trembled before a holy God. You know what I think one of the greatest problems is in our day and age? Is we have been taught in universities, through news media, through political theories, that, that we are given the right to pursue happiness. That whatever our flesh desires is what we should pursue. We're only going to live this life once, so we might as well, you know, live our best life now. But friends, the reality is, That what has been taken away from, I think, what generations before us had is, is this trembling before God, this fear of God, this awareness that He is holy, we are not, judgment is coming. And we must live our lives accordingly. Are you aware of your own unrighteousness before a holy God apart from Christ? Are you aware of your need for Christ? To be washed in His blood. That's what the, the shepherds understood when the angels came to them. Before a word was spoken, they trembled before this holy display of God's majestic creation. Look at verses 10-11 through 11 with me. And they said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This was the gospel that was terribly good news. It was terrifying in the appearing of the holiness that was radiated through the messengers. But it was also good news. The, the Greek word here, uh, we bring good news, euangelizo. The, the, this is good news that was preached to poor sinners. And it's preached here to a particular people. Now, uh, the, the extent of the message is to be heralded to the entire world, but, but here we see even in the very beginning that this good news is to a particular group of people. Uh, the, 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 the text does not say... I bring you good news of great joy for all people. It says all the people. And the definite article makes a definite difference in the interpretation of what is being said here. He's not just saying that this good news will be received by all. There are some people I think that, 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 that they think that we can herald the gospel to the entire earth and people are just going to click their heels together. And, and, and come with bells on. But the reality is, though we should take the gospel into the uttermost parts of the earth because we've been commanded to do so, here this definite article points to a particular people. The people who will ultimately turn in repentance and belief on Christ and Christ alone. This good news is for all of the people. And in the Jewish context, this would have been understood as those who were inside of the Jewish community, those who belonged to, to God's early covenant. It was terribly good news. The world doesn't, again, like this news. The, the, the people who God has placed His love on will rejoice at this good news, but not all people will rejoice at this news. In fact, many this morning We'll gather, or tomorrow morning, we'll gather, and this morning, we'll gather around pulpits and around Christmas trees, and they will, they will even acknowledge mentally that Jesus is the reason for the season, but they will not tremble at the holiness of God. 
They will not turn from their sin. In fact, you know, the, the very odd reality of Christmas is this. Christmas is supposed to be a time to celebrate the reality that we've been delivered from sin. And I think Christmas has turned in, in America into one of the greatest reflections of sin. In materialism and loving the things of this earth. Now, I'm not trying to downplay your joy around the Christmas tree tomorrow, kids. Unwrap your presents and be thankful for what you've been given. But don't live your life for what's under the tree. Live your life for the one who hung on a tree. Verse 11 really tells us, it's kind of the, it's kind of the to and from label uh, on the greatest gift that has ever been given. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Unto you, unto the shepherds, unto the nation, unto the whole of those who would call upon the name of the Lord is born this Christ. But not only was this tag saying who the gift was to, but why it matters. And I'm convinced that part of what is wrong with our society is that people feel entitled to everything. We've raised a generation who think that they are owed by the, their mid-twenties everything that their parents have struggled to earn by their fifties. I think often when I listen to 20-year-olds complain about not being able to have this or that, man, some of y'all didn't grow up getting enough oranges in your stocking. You know what I'm talking about. You come downstairs and, and you see that gigantic sphere inside of that knitted stocking and you go, oh great. Because there's one purpose for an orange in a stocking. One, it's cheap. Well, two, one, it's cheap. And two, it fills up a whole lot of space. Years that I knew I, had not, I was on the naughty list, if we're going to go the moralistic Santa Claus uh, earthly direction with Christmas, I knew it was a bad year if I got grapefruit because that just expands the, 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 the problem, doesn't it? But here the gift that we have been given in the incarnation of Christ, Cam, I promise you, is anything but cheap filler. There is a grand reality of why we have been given Christ. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, I'm tempted here. This is one of those passages that your pastor looked at. And the only reason was because of timing, not because I didn't want to do it. Uh, where I think you could make four sermons out. This could take up all of, of December uh, on Sunday mornings. Let's rush through the... The, the angel says... That this is good news. And here he bestows four titles that come together in one person. There are four realities of Christ here in this one verse. One, born in the city of David. That he is the son of David. David has been mentioned at this point in Luke six times if I'm counting correctly. And this child is born unto you. Uh, is the royal son. He is the one who has been promised. All of the promises that come through the throne of David are yes and amen in Jesus. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. Secondly, he is labeled here as a savior. A savior is a deliverer, someone who saves a person or a group of people from a particular destruction. And Jesus here is labeled a savior because he has come to save us. Now, the immediate response, I think, in the Jewish mind would have been to believe that this Messiah was to come and save them from political turmoil and, and to establish a physical nation and all of those Things, but we find the reality of Christ is that He didn't come to save us from, from... And this teaches even more of the radical depravity of man, doesn't it? Because, because the thought would have been we need to be set free from the political oppression of the Roman Empire. What they really need to be redeemed from was the wrath of God. Their sins had put them in a position where they deserved every moment of their life the intense and eternal wrath of God. Just punishment. And here we find that this is our Savior. He is the one that if we are in Him, all of the wrath of God has been poured out upon Him and we no longer set under that wrath. 
Third is described as the Christ. This speaks of His being the promised Messiah. to, To the original mind, this would have set forth imagery of the reality of Christ's priestly office and and the reality that He was the anointed one, the one who was set aside for a specific purpose of being our mediator in a priestly fashion. And finally, the angels herald that He is Lord and this speaks of His kingly rule, His right to sovereignly rule over everything. We've been talking about in John chapter 1 The reality that all that is created is created that God would display His redemptive work. That that all of creation is a redemptive theater and He sovereignly rules and reigns over every aspect of His creation. And here, the angels herald that reality. This, This word Savior points to His role in delivering His people. Christ to His office as the promised anointed one. And the reality of His Lordship points to His sovereign rule over the universe. But you know, none of this would have been known had God not sent these messengers, these angels, to carry forward these good tidings. Not only to these shepherds, but to you and I as well. These angels, I want you to notice something here. These angels didn't come in the modality of most modern preaching. They didn't come trying to get the shepherds to give Jesus a try. They didn't come and try to use some fancy uh, linguistic uh, or, or oratory skill to emotionally manipulate you or these shepherds into some sort of decision. They merely delivered the message that God had given them. And in holiness, they did that work. The angels were messengers. They heralded the message. And God ultimately, and this is what I want you to see that is so wonderful and what we can believe in our own day. God's messengers deliver His message and God through the working of both His providence and His sovereignty and the work of His Spirit draws a people unto Himself. It's the way it worked then. It's the way it works now. We're not responsible for the fruit. We're responsible for the clarity of the message. We should be faithful to proclaim the Gospel in the faithful pattern of these angels and we should remember that it's a terrible thing when we take this gospel into a lost and dying world not everybody's going to turn in repentance and that's okay as long as you have handled this gospel with fear and trembling you have done your part and so the question then comes how will we really know who this Jesus is is. Well, look at verse 12. The, the, the messengers give a, a, a picture, a clear understanding of how these shepherds will find this Christ. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. Wh- which child in Bethlehem is the Christ? And, and here, the, 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 the angels describe his outward garments, and that's important as a visual clue to the shepherds. But the real, I think, picture that is driven home here in, in verse 12 is that Christ is the one that you will find always clothed in humility. Keep that in the back of your mind in a day and age where so many different Christs are leveled against you, beloved. Where there are political versions of Christ that are leveled against you, saying get involved in this cause or that cause. Where there are Christs that are leveled moralistically. And I really want you to always have at the back of your mind the Christ that came to redeem you is a Christ of radical humility. One of radical grace. As I keep thinking on the incarnation, it's interesting that we, we get caught, I think, at this point. We, we think that it's so amazing that Christ would be born into a manger. And I think there's something in the human psyche that, that, that really keeps us at a distance from a cattle trough. That, that we as humans would never condescend to being born into a cattle trough. 
because we are so much more than, than to be given to that kind of estate. But isn't it interesting that there's something of pride wrapped up in our minds, I think, even in that? Because for Jesus to leave the throne room of heaven and all of the glory that he enjoyed there eternally and to take on human flesh, the next step of being born into the trough isn't that much of a difference. For, for Jesus to come down this far is humility enough, but he completes it by going as low as he possibly can. And, and here the... the the shepherds are given this indicator that, that you will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger, because that wasn't common. Well, friends, it wasn't common for, for God to become man either. A true miracle is that he came in human flesh. And then we come. And we come to this reality that that God has been made man and He will dwell with us. And for all of eternity, He will bear the scars of our redemption. The only reminder of our sin there will be bound in the body that Christ takes on in this text. And all of heaven erupts at this point. We yawn when we hear Glory to God in the highest. Some of us can come in here and I promise you that it's one of, the, one of the greatest indicators of our spiritual lethargy that we can come in and mumble. Glory to God in the highest. Okay, let's get through this. We've got a pot roast on at home. Let's, you know, it's not that big of a deal. When all of the hosts of heaven could not peel back enough to look in and to cry out in their hearts of the glory of God that they beheld in that manger. We yawn because we've gotten so used to the story. But I promise you this, I, I, I have taken, my kids can't stand taking me to movies because I'm the boring guy that I've found out that I have a flashlight on my wristwatch and I can read a book while the movie's going on. It's an embarrassment to them. But they, they are enthralled with, y'all might have to help me out here, um, now Bennett's fallen asleep, he's my greatest help. All of these uh, Marvel and DC, and you know, the sad thing is that my dear wife knows all of the differences between Marvel and DC, and each one of my children it just shows you how prone that humanity is given to partiality, that it, some of my boys are DC people, some of them are Marvel people, and if you get it confused, they are incensed, uh, but they'll go to the movie, and man, this is awesome, and I always am just a little bit like, all right, I'm glad you enjoyed that. What's going on here is better than anything you, any story, any novel, anything that grips your heart. What is happening in this moment is the pinnacle of human history up to this, this point. It, it, it really is glorious in the fullest fashion imaginable. If God would only give us eyes to see the reality of this text, we would never walk away from it mumbling out glory to God in the highest. We would with every fiber of our being praise God for what He has done. The angels, the angels didn't just come and give a message and then kind of alone mumble out well, glory to God in the highest. No, as soon as they heralded this reality of the fourfold reality of the identity of Christ, then all of the heavenly hosts joined in and praised God for what He had done. And up to this point, that there have this is the third carol in the Gospel of Luke. We have Mary's Magnificat, we have Zacharias Benedictus, and here we have what the angels herald, Gloria in excelsis Deo. That is glory to God in the highest. And this was sung by an entire chorus of angels. This is, this is not a song that we came up with, Brian. This is a song that he came down with. If there's one thing you should sing... Listen, I've been in pastoring long enough to know. You know my early years in ministry, I thought... We are going to be the church that just welcomes everybody and we're going to hit every note and we're going to welcome every preference in and everyone's just going to be happy. 
And then you realize, yeah, that's going to happen one day. It's called glory, not here. Everybody's preferences and and particular likes and dislikes are always going to press in on the poor guy that leads in, in music. But we should all be in one accord on these words. That glory to God in the highest for sending His Son in the likeness of human flesh. Think about this. Think about this. Think about this reality. And we just think, yeah, the, the angels, they praise Jesus. That's not what's grand here. The angels had praised Christ in His holiness as a member of the Trinity all throughout eternity. And, and some people will proclaim this message as though Jesus came because He needed glory. I promise you, He existed in eternity with all of the glories of heaven. He came to reveal that glory in its fullness in this manger. That's the wonderment. That's why these created beings, these angels, as they look down from heaven and they see the fullness of God's glory displayed in the reality that He would send His Son to save such glorious creatures like you and I. Know that in all of His mercy and His wisdom and His justice and His majesty that He would send the monogenesis, the only begotten Son, into the world to save sinful wretches like you and I. And you wonder why I get so cranked up when people call it just merely, well, I'm going to bust a blood vessel. A theological controversy as to whether or not man is just radically depraved or a little sin sick. I promise you when you read in contrast to the incarnation of Christ, we cannot be merely sin sick. We are radically depraved. And that is the glory to which the angels are exclaiming over Christ. Ryle, he says, now is come the highest degree of the glory of God. By the appearing of His Son Jesus in the world, He by His life and death and on the cross will glorify God's attributes, justice and holiness, mercy and wisdom as never were before. Now, don't hear that wrong. Those attributes have existed perfectly in the Godhead throughout all of eternity, but here, particularly in the Incarnation, they are displayed for you and I. And for all of the hosts of heaven to see. Think about this. It's disgusting that we turn worship services into spectacles to compare. Some people come into a church service and they say, well, I like the, church, the, the worship service over here better than over here. Or I like this particular type of music. Can we all just agree this morning? That Luke chapter 2 was the greatest gathering an exaltation of Christ throughout the history of the church and everything that has followed that is merely a resounding echo of the angels of God declaring the glory of God. And one day we'll be gathered around the throne of God and this band of angels will lead in the procession of praising God. Don't be too hard on Brian is what I'm saying. It's a lot to shoulder. He's a good guy, but he's not going to make up for a bunch of angels. He doesn't even close to being one. Anyway, I I truly believe that on, on this particular moment, if you think about the grand cosmic narrative, I think we read our Bibles too flatly, don't we? The reality is that there are there is a spiritual dimension to everything that's happening in Scripture. And we see from the very beginning that, that Satan's cause in the world is to rob God of his glory, to destroy man spiritually, and to bring all of them to condemnation. I think Satan must have been trembling at this moment when the glory of God was being exclaimed to all of the recesses of the universe because he had sent his son into the world to redeem sinners. And though theologians for the past 2,000 years have been unsure about whether or not 
Jesus was going to complete all that he intended to, I'm sure that not even Satan was misunderstood at that point. He knew that the coming of the Son in the flesh meant that everything that God was going to do would come to pass. A definite redemption. And so the angels couldn't contain themselves. They were praising as they had in heaven, but now the depths of His justice and holiness and wisdom had met with a new revelation to all of His creatures. All of this, all of this, as the world slept and went on in spiritual darkness. And so then the angels pronounce a benediction that has been, again, controversial in the church, but never in the economy of heaven. Not only was the sending of the Son into the world for the glory of God, but it was also for the good of man. Look at verse 14 with me. And on earth, now I can't read it by itself, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. He has pronounced a bringing of peace on earth. Now, if you look at the pages of history, if you look throughout the church uh, heritage, and here the angels are declaring a peace towards those with whom he is pleased, the church, you might get a little confused. Because the church has not lived in abject peace. The, the church hasn't uh, abided in, in, in perfect shalom. She's been harassed and mocked, deluded with false professors, hemmed in with false teachers, beaten and murdered. But friends, the catalogs of church history can only record what is external. What has happened on the outside. And though the church has not experienced peace outwardly. I think part of what we have to see in the full economy of Luke chapter 2 is what kind of peace is being given to the church here and to the people of God. Look at verse 1 of, of Luke chapter 2. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus is a very important historical figure. And a cursory reading of history will show that what Luke is, is doing is he's teaching us the difference between true peace and worldly peace. Caesar had achieved worldly peace. This was the age of the Pax Romana. Uh, this uh, was a peace that Caesar achieved, was a military peace. It, it was a costly peace because many were killed, others were oppressed. It was a peace that was merely external. It was a peace that it was a peace that really only served the purposes of the emperor. As long as the empire viewed it as peaceful, it was peace. But it was a peace that came at the end of a spear. One of, one of Luke's contemporaries, a, a philosopher, not a believer, wrote this, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than ever than even outward peace. Well, what the angels here are declaring is not an outward peace. I don't have to illustrate this this morning, and I'm not gonna, I don't want to belabor this because I don't want to get anybody in trouble this morning, but when families gather together at Christmas time, the number of pastoral calls that I receive for wisdom and advice of handling difficult family members increases exponentially because the external peace is broken. But we have something more than an external peace. We have peace internally with God. But beloved, do you have peace with God today? I pray that you do. It's something that only He can give. It's not something that's earned or merited. It is something that is freely bestowed by a sovereign Savior. Friends, in all of our hearts and in our minds, our sins cry out against us. And the only thing that will silence the conscience other than a hardening of heart, the only thing that will genuinely give peace between you and God is the blood of Christ applied to your account by faith. 
Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to be reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his, Christ, uh, of his cross. Run to Christ, my friend. Run to him for forgiveness and healing. It's only when we have peace then with God that we can have peace with one another. We, we live in a day and age where, where the diplomatic minds of our day and the, the thinkers of our day and the leaders of our day are all clamoring for world peace. And there are, there are liberal scholars that have written books on how we can achieve uh, economic peace and, and, and military peace and all of the rest, but can I promise you this on the authority of the Word of God, until you are reconciled to God and in Christ, you cannot have true peace with others. It's only through Christ, and that's one of the glories of heaven. One of the glories of heaven is that, that in heaven, everyone will be at perfect peace, perfect shalom with God, and perfect shalom, perfect peace with one another. I told you that the Gloria contained controversy, but I don't think that's accurate. I think, I think the church has controversy, but the text never is controversial in and of itself. The Gloria has been used to teach this passage, this verse, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And it's interesting because many have taken this passage and only used a portion of it to teach a universal redemption. But you can't read the fullness of the text and not see that this is not a universal redemption. God has not, not promised to save everyone, but to save all of those who would turn in repentance and faith and call upon the name of the Lord. Most people will go on enjoying the pleasures of this life, looking for power and comfort and pleasure, and they'll look for external peace apart from God. All throughout the holiday season, they will not be concerned with whether or not they have internal peace between them and God. Their conscience no longer even convicts them of sin. But here we see the reality that this good news is heralded to, yes, the ends of the earth, but it ultimately is a pronouncement of peace, not to every creature, but to all of those among those with whom he is, he is pleased. This, this, this ex exaltation of God's glory actually teaches the elective purposes of God. It is only by the grace of God that we are ever given peace with God. And when we have this peace, nothing else can disturb us. It's why we find, if you look at the early centuries of the church, you'll find that Christians were often martyred, beaten. They were used as scapegoats for fires that happened in Rome. And they were ridiculed. And, and, and all of this seemingly did not deter them from their faith. But the church grew and grew and grew and grew. How in the world? And to our, to our fleshly minds, we go, why? Like if you're experiencing this brutality, I, I, I mean, it's probably not the best evangelical strategy that if you are converted to Christ, you'll be fed to the lions. Do you want to fill out this card and pray the prayer? why the card in the prayer didn't show up until a lot later. One, it's a device of men, not of God. But people would, would say, yeah, I'll be fed to the lion. I'll experience my limbs being torn from my body. And I'll give glory to God all the while. How can that be? It's because we are fixed on the external of their lives and what they are glorying in is the internal peace that they have. Nothing in this life compares to that reality. The strength of the church today is so weak. Why? Because what is being proclaimed as the gospel is all a bunch of externals. If you come to Jesus, He'll give you a car. Boy, you can meet me in the parking lot and see that I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. <laughs> My pickup is next to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And that's okay. I love it. 
Um, your marriage will be perfect. Your relationship with your children will be great. Your finances will all, will all be full. Can I tell you that that gospel would be a mockery to the first century Christian? They would look at all of those things and say, what a low, paltry cost you are giving yourselves over to instead of receiving the fullness of what is really being offered here in this exaltation of Christ that you can have peace with Almighty God. I think one of the things that escapes us, it's interesting, is it not? Look at verse 9 and 10 again with me. How this starts and then how it ends really matters. And the angel, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. And this starts with a, a realizing that they are sinful creatures and that they are, that they are separated from this holiness even in the reflection of these angels. That's the way that this starts. But it ends much differently. It ends with a proclamation of peace. No longer do we need to respond to holiness in fear and trembling. Why? Because the Spirit of God indwells His people and now we possess that holiness not by our works, but by divine grace alone. There was a missionary who came to this particular verse, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And he was having a difficult time translating into the particular language that he was working with this verse. And I think if we're honest, in biblical academia, those same difficulties um, are faced in the English language, but because there is such a demand for translations in the English language, we do, well, we just barrel through it. We just stick a word to it and we say, there, that'll work. And then people become misunderstood about what a passage is teaching because of a faulty translation. Now this brother worked tirelessly to try to draw out what was being taught in this exaltation of God. And here is what he ended with after much prayer. God in heaven is just so good. Now, I do think that that is a, a limited translation. The, the exaltation of the glory of God is more than he's just so good. But it's a good start. He goes on. So the people who live in this world, if God's heart is happy with them, then their fear is all gone now. Now that, I think, is a fantastic translation. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. God is so good. So the people who live in this world, if God's heart is happy with them, then their fear is all gone now. Is your fear gone? If you were to die today... Has your fear of death been taken away? I want you to look at one other passage, and it's one of my favorite. And Braxton's already read it for us this morning, but one of my favorite passages. And we'll find a man who conforms to this principle that I've just been given you, that if the heart of God is, is pleased with you, then there's nothing else to fear. That was this man named Simeon. His picture is hanging up in the back today. I like him so much. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was, a right, was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in this child, Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. What? What the church has referred to this 
exclamation of Simeon for over the centuries is the nunc dimittis, literally translated ready to depart. Here was Simeon ready to depart, old and wise and not even afraid of death because he had seen the fullness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the question we end with today is how does this peace come to a person? Some will tell you in this world that this peace comes by you doing good works. I think that will only bring more discouragement, resentment, and exhaustion. Some will tell you that by your own personal holiness, you can have peace with God. And I promise you those shepherds, if, if they thought that there was a holiness in man that could get them to heaven, they would not have responded in the way that they did here in Luke chapter 2. Some people get even closer to the truth and they'll say, well, all it takes is a decision on your part. But even that one little effort on your part spoils the gospel, doesn't it, Cam? For the gospel is the good news that the Son of God has taken on human flesh in the likeness of sinful man that He will save His people from their sins. And so the peace that we have with God only comes by the power of the Spirit in regenerating a dead heart unto eternal life through the blood of Christ by the will of the Father. I can't think in the text, and, and I could be corrected, but I can't think of, of, a, of, of a particular way in which the angels appear again unto man with these glad tidings with exclaiming the, the glory of God in the same way. And I think there's a reason for that. The angels here declare God's glory, not so that we can put it in paper letters above the manger scene in the play that we do to try to draw a crowd. He explains that these angels, this angelic host, explains and, and exclaims the glory of, of God, the triune God, in all of their redemptive work, here to these shepherds for one simple purpose. And if we read the rest of the text, we'll find it. Look at verse 16. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The reason that we don't find a repetition of this kind of exaltation of the glory of God is because that, that message has been now entrusted to those who have heard it. If you've heard the, the glory of God in your own life, if you have received salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, then you have reason in every area of your life to glorify God alone. That is the entire purpose of this text. What those angels did so many centuries ago, we should do in every area, aspect, and every day of our life. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, what a beggar to come to this text. What glories are here that You would leave the wonderments of heaven and condescend to take on human flesh and then to be found in the lowliest estate a, a child has ever been born into. You owned everything, and yet you divested yourself of everything worldly and eternal. That we might be glorified in you, and you might be glorified forever. Father, we're so thankful that you have revealed this good news to us that we don't earn or merit 
or cooperate to bring ourselves to salvation, but it is something that You have done by Your good graces alone. Father, might we be a people who rejoice in this reality and who herald the good news of the Gospel that Christ has come to save sinners. Might we be faithful in our day as these angels were faithful on this Christmas Eve. Father, might we be reminded throughout the remainder of our celebration of Christmas that nothing that we receive this year could ever compare with the glory of what You've given us in the face of Jesus Christ. Might we always hold every material thing that we're given in this life openly and to You, knowing that soon we will stand before Your throne and only those who are in Christ will be shielded from the wrath that is to come. Might that alone give us reason to praise You for all that You have done in Your glory. In Christ's name.